I just didn't understand why connecting the best freelancers to great companies couldn't be frictionless. That's Shib Matthew, founder of the elite freelancer platform, You Know Juno. They've built a reputation of disrupting traditional recruitment and bridging the gap between hirer and freelancer. Since day one, our goal at Unajuno has been to address every frustration we had as either freelancers or hirers. From direct and transparent communication, to taking the stress out of getting paid on time, to being properly recognised for great work. Today, Unojuno is now the world's largest marketplace of premium creative and tech talent. Last year we reached half a billion pounds in freelancer bookings, and we still feel like we're just beginning. If you would like to know more about Unojuno, their views on the future of work being freelance, and what they can do for you, head on over to unojuno.com. Hello and welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right, the podcast where we talk to creatives about the pivotal moments in their career. I started this podcast because I had friends with brilliant jobs and thought, how did they get to do that? And now I've got a brilliant job talking to people from all sorts of careers and backgrounds to find out how they got to do the job they love. I hope they inspire you. And if you're like me and a bit nosy, I hope you get your fill of lots of brilliant stories. You won't be disappointed by this week's guest. Dr. Wahid Aryan was born in Afghanistan and spent his childhood in the middle of the Soviet conflict. His family sought sanctuary in Pakistan and had to endure a hazardous journey to get there. After moving to the UK when he was older, Wahid overcame the odds to train as a doctor and has set up Aryan Teleheal, a charity which now has 100 volunteer medics who advise their colleagues in Afghanistan and other countries using social media or other everyday technologies. I'll leave him to tell you the rest of his incredible story. We couldn't speak because what was going on with the Rwanda news a couple of weeks ago. For you growing up in, in Afghanistan, in a war zone, what is happening in Ukraine right now must be bringing it all back. It certainly does. What's happening in Ukraine, the jets that we uh, see on the screens screaming overhead, the tanks rolling in, the bullets flying, reminds me of what we went through uh, in Afghanistan. I was born in 1983 during the Afghan-Soviet conflict. So the dark memories that I have from uh, that initial conflict. Mm. I do remember those tanks, the same tanks that were rolling outside, the same jets and the same bullets. We, as a family of uh, age 10, we had to leave Afghanistan when I was only five years old. And we had to take a very dangerous route through mountains and valleys to go to Pakistan like millions of other refugees. And that's when we did come under the attack of these jets and the helicopter gunships uh, along the way. You say you went to um, to Pakistan. I wondered, because your parents took you, did you have any sense that you were going to go or did they say to you one day, right, we're going? So after spending five years uh, in Kabul, and because my father had to flee the military service and he had to be in hiding uh, in faraway proven, uh, provinces, we didn't get to, to see him a lot. The two very uh, vivid memories that I have, one is being taken to a local park by my mother to have ice cream and another one is my father bending down and giving me a big kite and then for him to suddenly disappear. Um, at that time, people who were living in Afghanistan under the Soviet-backed regime, they had to serve in the military and that meant that they had to fight fellow Afghans. So my father didn't want to kill anyone and he just wanted to look after us, but he wasn't given a choice. So our family was 
broken at that time. Mm. Uh, he had to flee, keep in hiding. My mother used to look after us with very little income from the shops that we owned in front of our house um, and very little food. And that's the time when they realized that they couldn't be together. And we didn't have a father from time to time, every three or four months, he would go to a province and then suddenly my father would reappear out of nowhere, which would be magical. And then he would disappear. Yeah. So that sort of constant uh, loss and reunion was not healthy at all for us, of course, given the context. And then they decided that we would have to leave. They didn't tell us where we were going um, because it was a very dangerous route. The normal borders were closed to go to Pakistan. The government wouldn't allow people to migrate. So we had to take this very dangerous route and we had to flee at night time on donkeys and horses as a caravan of 20 families. And during the day, if any activity was seen, a Soviet helicopter gunship and the jets would attack them, whether they were children, families, because the same route was also used by the opposition, the Mujahideen fighters, to bring in weapons. And they wouldn't discriminate, they would just uh, kill anybody. We have got no sense here, you know, sometimes we complain in this country about certain things, but we have got no idea what it was like. And I just, I'm just trying to work out for you lying in bed or wouldn't be a bed probably each night, how, how you felt that fear, that fear must never have left you. It didn't. So I was uh, one of those children who was born into war and that was my reality. Mm. Uh, seeing uh, soldiers, helicopter gunships and the jets and when we went to Pakistan, that was in 19, um, when I was only five years old in 1988, we started living in a refugee camp. We were first safe, but then we soon realized that the condition was absolutely inhumane. Within days, most of us got malaria and within months, I contracted tuberculosis. They nearly killed me, but it also inspired me to become a doctor, having been treated by that doctor in a refugee camp who gave me a stethoscope and a black and white textbook. Uh, telling me that one day I would become a doctor because I was inquisitive and he was my only mental stimulation in a camp where I couldn't even attend school. I did for a few days, but it was just on a muddy floor that we were sitting there. So for me, it never left me the trauma, the constant suffering. Uh, on the other hand, I didn't know anything else until a bit later on when we returned back to Afghanistan in 91, because my father came to an age where he uh, didn't have to serve military. And in 92, uh, sadly, the civil war broke out, which was a street by street fight among so many different groups, because of which we had to again flee from one part of the city in Kabul to another part. And then again, back and forth to Pakistan, hiding in cellars most of the time, where most of my education happened through self-reading, because uh, the schools were destroyed, and there was no economy, uh, the hospitals were destroyed as well. And I have, was having a lamp to just read whatever I could uh, find outside on the streets of Kabul. Uh, so that's my education. But I also tuned in to BBC and the English service to find out if there was another world. And I would listen to people meeting for dinner uh, and I would try to practice my English. And it gave me a window that actually beyond this trauma, beyond the conflict that I was born into, the reality that I knew, there is some sort of another reality that maybe one day I could achieve. So mm -hmm. I would create those moments of delusions in my head that, you know, I would be in a safe country where I'd be going to school, I'd be lying in bed uh, safe, I would have friends, 
Uh, and uh, sometimes even when I hear people say, oh, I'm washing my dog, I was thinking, how on earth can they find that so much water? We can't even find water to, to drink. And there are people actually who are washing their dogs. So for me, it's all fascinating, but also the, uh, a window of hope for me, especially at an age where I was coming to realize and try to understand what the reality is. Mm. That detachment from reality was happening for me at a tender age of 10 to 12 when I, I started developing depressive symptoms, um, completely losing hope the hope that was given to us by my parents that didn't work any longer. They would say, next day we'll be fine. The next month we'll be fine. We'll be, and for us, no, it's not. So mm. I was trying to make sense of what was happening in the world. I couldn't. So here was something else uh, um, that I would say that one day, maybe I could reach that another world. At the same time, I was also inspired to become a doctor. And I think that seed of inspiration of having a vision for the future can be extremely helpful. And the third coping mechanism I had was uh, I got into exercise, which I've kept up with, and it helped me incredibly with my mental health at that time, even now that uh, when I'm under so much pressure doing various things. Uh, and seeing, reminding me of, of the traumas that we went through, mm. exercise is amazing, and it's uh, proven to be helpful for, uh, for our mind, our mental health. And, and you talked about the doctor that you met and he was your, you know, one mental stimulus and he said, like, you can do this. But there must have been something about being a doctor that you thought it can't just have been the stethoscope. You, you must have. What was it about being a doctor that you thought, yeah, do you know what? That's for me. I think it was his kindness. It's the way he was speaking with me, the way that I saw him as a healer. That um, um, uh, initial diagnosis was he told my dad he took me out of the room, but still I was uh, trying to listen to what he was saying, and he told my dad that I had nearly 60-70% chance of dying uh, from tuberculosis because I was so malnourished, and um, we were living in conditions that were very ripe for diseases like tuberculosis to kill people, and we didn't have a lot of food and nutrition. Mm. So I knew that he was my healer. He was the one person who could uh, help me live along with my parents who did everything uh, my father was away on the road trying to work whatever he could to bring in some food. And that was simply some meat, um, some vegetable and some uh, fruit, along with milk, which I started hating towards the end because they, they tried to give me so much. Um, and it worked. So for me, it was about the compassion he showed me that inspired me that you can actually, uh, another one human can heal another human. Mm. And that's something that I brought with me here as well. That when I came to the UK, age 15, as a child refugee on my own. Which is unbelievable with, with... in itself. You are on your own. I mean, totally terrifying. But I suppose you were driven by this purpose. Yes, it was a purpose. One, having no other alternative. Mm. I think that was the primary reason. Because that was the time when the Afghanistan was controlled by the Taliban. Sadly, the economy collapsed to the extent that my father was driving a taxi for six months just to be able to afford a sack of fries. The hospitals were destroyed. There was no educational system. So that meaningful sort of hope or that hope or the meaning for the future wasn't there for me. Uh, that was a loss of hope in that sense. Secondly, I also had uh, what the threat to my life uh, of coming to an age where I could be recruited to or could be forced to fight i didn't want to fight i want to help heal people so that was the primary reason when i came 
but of course, another reason for it was that I, deep down, I had that inspiration in me that I wanted to do something with my future. But it wasn't a fairy tale, though, was it? Because you ended up at a Young Offenders Institute. And did you think at that point, do you know what? I've made the wrong decision to come here. I did. Uh, when I landed in the UK, I was sent to Feltham. Uh, a young offenders institute there for two weeks uh, the charges against me were because of the passport that i had which was uh, not correct and that's what the agent gave me there were no official routes they still don't exist so people when they're fleeing conflict zones they can't just go to an embassy to ask for a visa so sadly the narrative that's drummed here that people have to apply legally it really doesn't exist in conflict zone i think it's it's meth that i have to demystify here so the only route available was through an agent. So I didn't have the correct passport with me. And that was one of the reasons they sent me to prison. But then I had a very kind barrister uh, who fought my corner. And he, the judge agreed that actually refugees, when they're fleeing conflict, they can't be punished because of the routes they take or because of the means they have with them in order to get to safety. Um, so after two weeks, I was released. I was on the street uh, in London. Uh, brand new, uh, and that was the beginning of a new life for me. But, but sadly, I, life doesn't start in that way because I did bring with me a lot of my traumatic memories as well. But we've also, you talked about kindness just then, and you had a kind barrister, the doctor that you met who was who was kind, and that, that drew you to, to a, a profession that, you know, you need a, a lot of that. I, I, you say that, you know, you, you came out and you thought maybe this is the start, but tough. I cannot get my head around the fact that you were a refugee and you've turned up in this institute but then you get out and you study and you work and you get to Cambridge I cannot work out how you managed to do that it's just incredible sometimes when I reflect my journey um, I can't get my head around this as well <laughs> but I think it's uh, uh, on one hand yes uh, we could say that it was my determination uh, and the fact that I saw opportunities that I never had as a child so I went overdrive in a way that I was trying to use every opportunity possible every minute of the day uh, because I was so scared that I might be deported back any time. I was my fate was still hanging in the balance. I wasn't immediately given a refugee status. Every three months my visa was renewed, but it, my case was still being reviewed by the Home Office. Mm. On the other hand, it was also the compassion that was shown to me. Um, I mentioned the barrister, but there were people who gave me my first job on Edgware Road in London. Um, the teachers who looked after me um, in college, who did my um, UCAS form to apply to university when nobody knew me. Uh, I didn't have even a school background, but the teacher put uh, her hand up and said, that, you know, I will actually help you and give you a reference when she didn't even uh, have any understanding of my background. So there was countless people along the way. So it wasn't only just my determination. That on, on its own doesn't work until we lend our hands to people and give them what they need, that support, which is what the refugees actually now need. Sure. And you talked about the trauma that you experienced and you were still suffering from, from PTSD. But were you not terrified that you were going to be going, apart from going to university, but after that, you will be a doctor and you will be working in a very stressful, tough situation? Were you not scared? Well, I was scared initially um, to be somewhere in a country where I didn't have any family members, I had nobody around me to guide me. I had to figure out a lot of the things myself. I asked the fellow refugees, you know, what I could do with my life. I told them I'm, I was inspired to become a doctor. But they told me that uh, after having a meeting that uh, where he, I think the best route for you, given that you're not white, 
that you don't have educational background, the fact that your family needs you is to work in a chicken shop, then to work as a taxi driver, and then maybe to own a chicken shop. So their vision for me was to become a chicken wing specialist, but I wanted to become a medical specialist. And how did you feel so, about that? Did you feel cross that they weren't really, I suppose they didn't think that you could do it? I was initially cross. I think people will be affected. But how I took it forward was uh, something that I've learned. And I keep applying that now as well. When people tell me you can't do this or this can't be done, it's simply to discover it for myself. Uh, mm. So I thought, why not try it yeah. uh, and see if I can figure it out? Um and when I was working during the day, I started uh, self-reading GCSE books uh, and then went on to do uh, A-levels at nighttime in various colleges to manage during work as well as studying. And for me, formulating that path to medicine, I looked at it very simply. I went to one of the admissions officers and I said, how do I become a doctor? And they were looking at me up and down saying, like, uh, excuse me, like, which school have you come from? I said, yeah. <laughs> I'm not at school. I just want to know how to become a doctor. So they gave me a prospectus and that highlighted the entry requirement, GCC A-level. So I completely blocked off everything else. I said, I need this. This is what I need. Focus and facts. This is what I need. And I kept blocking everything else. And that's the same thing that I apply now, even if I'm working on mental health platform area and well-being in order to put a high quality, comprehensive mental health service at the hands of everyone in the world uh, to, on smartphones. I don't listen to opinions. Yes, I listen to experts. I listen to what could be done, what should be done, but not to negative opinions. I just keep trying it. It's worked. But I, I wonder what your family, because you also displaced and you weren't in touch and you were here in the UK. When you told them the news that you had done it, you've got your uh, studies and you've got into Cambridge. Do you remember that moment? I do. Uh, I had not seen my mother for a long time. That was for four years coming. Uh, And I had made a promise to myself that I would only visit back. Well, first, I wasn't allowed to because I didn't have documentation. But if I were allowed, that I would do it when I get when I got into medical school. And when I got this uh, magical letter coming from Cambridge University that I had been accepted to study medicine, I called home. Uh, and I was absolutely ecstatic. And I told my mother that, um, and my father that, you know, I, Cambridge has accepted me and I'll be studying medicine. There was a little bit of silence. And my mother said, like, I always knew you would be successful. But when are you coming home? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was it. Uh, because, of course, I mean, in Afghanistan, they, my mother, bless her, my late mother, um, she didn't understand Cambridge, and, you know, what it meant. But, of course, they, they always had high hopes for me and they had that belief in me which was something that kept going me uh, and kept motivating me during conflict was they never stopped believing and they mm. said that even when we, they were sending me as a 15 year old um, their, their, their eldest son away uh, letting go of me they had that belief and they told me that we know that you'll be successful we know that you'll figure it out just don't stop believing in yourself um, and, I, and I'm extremely grateful yeah, and it's it's so important, isn't it? If you've got that, even if they're not physically there, if they've got that belief in you, even if they're thousands of miles away, and that must have helped you because I know at Cambridge, you know, you hadn't gone through the traditional education system. So to suddenly have all these courses and and deadlines and everything, that must have been really tough as well with the trauma still in the background, I'm sure. It was. Um, so in a way, the memoir that I've written in the wars that encapsulates my journey in Afghanistan, then my education, and then later on the philanthropy that, that I've done and the, the work that I do in global health, it, it was to summarize actually my journey, educational 
journey as well that people don't have necessarily to go through a linear system of educating themselves. And this is something that um, I have very um, feel very strongly about, that when people are put in one system and they're told this is the only way you could do it, they will never become creative enough to think outside the box. Mm. So for me, on one hand, I struggled uh, in Cambridge uh, socially as well, uh, because um, you know, I didn't have a lot in common with students. I hadn't been to on holidays. I hadn't watched all these dramas they were talking about. I didn't know how to go out and so on. Also, financially, I was suffering. Educationally, I was suffering as well because I didn't have a really strong background or any background at all, actually, in going to school apart from a couple of years in Afghanistan and refugee camp. So even though I had got the A grades, the five A grades required, but you do need to have a lot more that's why schools are there for uh and and i but they soon managed to adapt to that mm. i tried to learn how to speed read how to speed write and and compensate for it in other ways but later on all those experience and conflict and surviving conflict and trying to formulate my my own life has worked for me to be able to uh, set up a, a pioneering charity arian teleheal which connects medics from the NHS now across the world to conflict zones such as Afghanistan. We're working on Ukraine as well and other low resource countries on smartphones. But those sort of ideas and the courage to go for them have come because of the background that I've lived, the survival, the innovations that I've learned outside the box. Mm. So there are always lessons to be learned actually from alternative ways of doing things. And what's wonderful is that, because uh, I know your father had COVID and he was treated, and was that almost through the whole idea of Teleheal, that, you know, you got the expertise of NHS doctors to help the Afghan doctors to, to make him better? It did. Um, my father, a few months ago, he suffered very hard from, from COVID and he was soon had to be admitted to intensive care unit uh, in Kabul. And that intensive care unit was connected to our charity, Aryan Teleheal. Uh, and the same medical colleagues who have been sending us cases from Kabul intensive care were now looking after my father. So our specialists here in the NHS were giving advice on how to treat my father in that intensive care. So it was a very surreal, yeah. surreal moment for me, but also a moment when I realized that the true potential of, of the, the, what I found it was to help people. It came around to helping me and my father. Amazingly, he survived. He was yeah. in intensive care. He survived. Uh, I've detailed all that in the paperback of my memoir to be released on 23rd June. But it was something that took us, took me actually back straight to my refugee camp days when I couldn't breathe myself from suffering from tuberculosis. My father would tell me that you can't give up on breathing i used the same sentence back and i told him you can't give up on breathing that uh when he was almost certain that he had to die and he gave me instructions funeral instructions and what to do and so on and i told him listen you can't give up on that now mm. i think that's such a magical thing though that what you have done and you know your experiences is like you say has come full circle and i know you said in your book that it's not what happens to you but how you respond and and for you, like you say, you've, you've sort of thought creatively, you've thought outside the box, you, you haven't always listened to what people have said because you've gone with, with your, your gut feeling. And I suppose for you, you had a calling and would you tell, tell anyone who's interested in doing something that they, people have told them they can't do, just go for it? Absolutely, just go for it. And thank you so much for the kind words you've used. But I also have to highlight that another important component is our collective empathy and sympathy. 
Um, on our own, we can achieve so much. Um, so when I was going back and forth to Afghanistan, I became a doctor in 2010. I was so happy that I could give back to the NHS, to the UK, who had given me so much. So in a way, that was the beginning of my healing journey. And the more I talked about my traumas, I started healing me as well. But soon I realized that on my own, going back and forth to Afghanistan to help in hospitals, I couldn't do much. Uh, so I really had to think outside the box mm. to see how I can get the support of so many other people on board. And that's when I started speaking with my colleagues in the NHS and they told me that they wanted to help as well. So the final component I realized was actually finding other people who have got a similar vision to ourselves and using the empathy and sympathy and working collectively together was the way forward for me. I realized that on my own, I couldn't achieve. The bigger goal I had was to reach out to people in conflict zones who had suffered equally like I had. Sure. So it's very important for us to bring other people on board as well. Yeah, like a, a collective effort. And, you know, when we look back at, I mean, your your life so far has been absolutely incredible. And the, the podcast is called Where Did It All Go Right? Because it could have gone very, very differently, couldn't it? It could have all gone terribly wrong. You know, so many dangerous moments in your life. But pivotal moments for you, we talked about meeting the doctor and meeting a, a kind um, solicitor. But just having that mindset and, and all the things you've talked about, exercise and, and not giving up, what else would you say has, has made such a difference? Well, you, you've encapsulated very nicely there. I would also say that having the, the ultimate vision to be able to help people, and I think that's where, for me, the bigger aim, looking at it, despite going so many issues, so many challenges on a daily basis, so many setbacks, so things go wrong all the time for me. But what brings it back to me is knowing that, well, why am I doing this? And being very clear of that actually helps not ourselves, but also it helps our team. Mm -hmm. And for me to be able to tell them that, listen, that things have gone wrong. We, we couldn't do this, but can we do this? Because of the bigger vision we have is to reach to people, vulnerable people um, across the world. And we have to keep fighting for it. So having that um, ultimate vision, that giving, which actually is scientifically known to enhance our happiness, is actually to help our mental health. So that comes round uh, yeah. in, in, in doing so. So for me, that would be the ultimate um, answer. Talking about, you know, having hope for, for future generations, watching Afghanistan, you know, falling under the rule of the Taliban again and seeing a new generation of, of refugees, you must want similar things for them that what happened to you freedom and and you want to just help as much as you can absolutely when i see refugees they start fleeing i know the reason why they flee the dangerous journeys they take uh, and then coming to a country like the uk all they want is safety they want to be given compassion the same way as i was given but sadly we see that a lot of the refugees are now dehumanized they are persecuted back in a country where they should be giving them uh, compassion and safety and now they're being sent away to places like Rwanda so it really breaks my heart mm. that these are refugees like myself who have got equal talents they have their innovations but, but foremost they have the human rights and they have a human right to safety they can't find those official routes that we are talking about in the media that take a legal route there is no such thing as, as a legal route when you're fleeing bombs. You find whatever route you can and should to, to, to get to safety. 
But having said that, I think despite the negativity, I've seen so much kindness, so much compassion that we shouldn't lose hope. And we should keep highlighting how people reach out to each other. We've seen it in the pandemic, how collectively we came together, regardless of our backgrounds, to tackle the pandemic, helping our neighbours. I was on the front line of COVID and I still am uh, working in, as an emergency doctor in the NHS. So I have a lot of hope um, and, and a lot of hope for human for fellow humans to come together and to help each other. And I hope that we continue to do so. So what's next for you? I mean, you've squeezed a lot in already, um, but for you, obviously helping more refugees, we see you we'll see you lots in the media talking about it and, and sharing your story and I, I guess inspiring other people. Certainly, I would love to keep advocating for refugees to destigmatize and also demystify a lot of the politicization that's happening, hence my um, advocacy, whether it's in the media, on social media, or through podcast, and hopefully give hope and uh, some inspiration to other people from either similar backgrounds from displacement or going through any adversity so they don't give up on hope and they use some of the mechanism that I've used. Now I'm also working on um, Aryan Wellbeing, which is a mental health platform that I'm building along with highly qualified professionals who have come on board. And these are the mental health experts as well as uh, personal trainers and nutritionists to build a comprehensive platform when we can actually provide mental health support from a mind-body as well as taking into account the diversity of people to make sure that's tailored and personalized for each person so it can help their mental health. Uh, we're launching in the UK with a hope that we can scale it globally and then reach out to people who can who cannot even afford it. Wow, that sounds incredible. And when we talked about the pivotal moments in, in your career, in your life, we didn't mention your family, which we'd mentioned at the beginning, but they must be so proud of what you've done. And it's so wonderful that your dad is is feeling better now. But your your family here, your wife and your kids, I wonder if you talk to your kids about your experiences or is that something that you don't share with them? I am very privileged to have an amazingly supportive wife, uh, Davina, and two children. Uh, Alana, who's two-year-old, and Zane, who is six-year-old. I relive my childhood through my children's uh, childhood, so I'm, I don't go and tell them too much now. I just enjoy uh, seeing them grow up. It's actually mother who is more stricter, and <laughs> actually because for me, it's for one, I'm just letting them loose and seeing them how, how I, I just play with them. Yeah, and yeah, go and, go and climb on that high tree. It'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah, you just let them, yeah, let them, be, let them be kids. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe my son's first birthday was in Afghanistan. My uh, wife came with me and we celebrated his uh, birthday in Afghanistan and then the situation got worse so we couldn't go back again. Uh, but it's something that I, I would love him and, and my daughter to know when they grow mm. up more. Mm. Uh, the importance of uh, compassion, the importance of connecting with fellow human beings, regardless of their backgrounds, and how, through actually working together, we can reach out to people, uh, who, some of them who are the most uh, vulnerable in the world. And by doing so, we can actually change their lives. So not just having aspirations for our own lives, but how can we reach out to other people, which I think has been the key to my success, if you can call it. Absolutely. Well, it's inspiring hearing your story and it's I can't wait to hear what you're going to be doing next because uh, it, it sounds so exciting. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me and, um, you know, every success with everything that you do in the future.
Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. No worries. And it's uh, a pleasure of mine to be able to give this message to your audience. Thanks to Wahid for sharing his amazing story, which you can read all about in his book, In the Wars. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter for info on upcoming episodes at Where Go Right. And thanks to the very clever Megan Brownrigg for producing and Laura Shipsey for the music. <laughs>